This is Vaya Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. Hi, good morning. Thank you for joining me here on Vaya Con Munoz. Today we're going to speak with Charles Blacher III. He's the chairman of the National Coalition of Black Veteran Organizations, a recipient of the Black Congressional Caucus honor for his work on behalf of veterans. In an essay he wrote, he quoted somebody who said, they write you out of the future by writing you out of the past. And there, Blacher has been sounding the alarm for decades on the vital importance of knowing history and making sure it is stated correctly and inclusively. The reporting for the record includes making sure that the fact that 400,000 blacks served in World War I are not lost to history. And the activism includes making sure that Colonel Charles Young, a World War I soldier born into slavery and buried at the Arlington Cemetery in 1923, be given an honorary promotion to the rank of Brigadier General. After all, Young was the third black graduate of West Point, the first black superintendent of the National Park Service, the first black American military attaché to foreign governments in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Liberia. He was forced into medical retirement, but then he rode horseback 500 plus miles from Ohio to Washington, D.C. to prove his fitness to continue to serve. And they said, uh, no, you cannot serve in active duty, but you can certainly serve training other black servicemen. And that's what he did. President Obama had been asked to convey the honor on Young to be appointed Brigadier General, but the former president did not do that. Instead, he designated Young's house as a national landmark. This is what Blacher said in a speech during the unveiling of Young's maquette in 2014. We find it difficult to understand how his home rises to the status of a national monument, but the man is unworthy of the honorary pr promotion we are seeking to add to his name. Blacher concluded his remarks sharing the words of W.E.B. Dubois, who wrote about Young in the February 1922 issue of Crisis magazine. He does an excellent job of acquainting you with Ch Colonel Charles Young in that era in American history, Blacher said. And this is what Dubois said. The life of Charles Young was a triumph of tragedy. No one ever knew the truth about the hell he went through at West Point. He seldom even mentioned it. The pain was too great. Few knew what faced him always in his army life. It was not enough for him to do well. He must always do better, and so much conspicuously better, as to disarm the scoundrels that ever trailed him. He lived in the army surrounded by insult and intrigue, and yet he set his teeth and kept his soul serene and triumph. On this occasion, we are speaking to Mr. Blacher about the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., because something is missing. And this is what is missing. You know, the call, the initial call for that National Museum came from veterans. It was veterans from coming out of the Civil War who made the call for a National Museum during World War One. And it's a little bit odd that with them being the group that called for the museum, that their footprint in the institution is minimal. We firmly do believe that our contributions in the defense of this country is the cornerstone to our claim for equal rights civil rights, and equal opportunities. However, that is not the way that the history is presented within the context of the museum. An old gentleman 
the last African-American survivor of the Spanish-American War in the state of California was a friend of mine, retired Sergeant Samuel Waller. He once told me before he passed, the what factor in history is only important if you understand why. And in looking at that exhibit that is up in the National Museum, it lacks that explanation. As a matter of fact, when me and the representatives from some of the other organizations was doing a review, we had patrons of the museum actually coming up and following us around to ask us questions about what they were looking at, which was obvious that the exhibits were not self-explanatory in terms of their importance. You wrote, and one could ask, does our military history really matter? And you say, yes, our primary pursuit in American history has been to overcome persecution in the political, social, and economic arenas. And as you said, this is the, the veterans are the precursors to the civil rights movement. What were you told about the lack of emphasis on the contributions of black veterans at the museum? We were told absolutely nothing. We had asked the museum in advance if they would make the curator available to do a walkthrough with us because we were interested in get, getting the curator's point of view as to why and how he or she presented the history in the manner that it was presented. We were not extended the courtesy of a comment in regards to our requests. We went on a group pass as a group of veterans. One of our representatives in Washington, D.C. acquired the group pass for us, and we went unescorted by anyone from the institution. That must have been a very frustrating experience then. Well, it was very disheartening based on the importance of the history itself and based on our historical involvement and based on my personal involvement with that institution. I did serve as a member of the preliminary planning team for that institution. And my visit a week or so ago was my first opportunity to see the content of the institution. You speak in, uh, you wrote a letter uh, where you speak about uh, Crispus Attucks, who was one of the people who was killed and was an influencing influencing factor in the, the start of the American Revolutionary War. Can you tell us a little bit more about this this man? Yes, Chris, Christmas Addis was among the first to fall in the Boston Massacre that occurred on March the 5th, 1770. He was among the first. According to the exhibit in the museum, he was the first one to die in that incident, which is not true. He's, his stand, he took a stand for liberty and justice, which I would say is the precursor to the modern-day civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. He was willing to die for equality, for freedom, and equal opportunity. And that was echoed on through to the Civil War, when Frederick Douglass called for blacks, black men to, to come and bear arms on behalf of the Union Army to fight to eradicate slavery. From that standpoint, our military involvement is the linchpin of the civil rights movement. Had it not been for the fact that during Vietnam, that so many Black men had been inducted into the armed forces and had been sent out of this country. Had it not been for that fact, there would not... It's questionable if there would have been a Civil Rights Act of 1965. It's questionable if any concession at all would have been made to the black community. Those concessions were made on the backs of the men and women that were serving in the defense of this nation. Also, you mentioned that there is little mention of the 1906 Brownsville incident. Could you tell us about what happened in 1906 in Brownsville? There was a riot that took place in 1906. We had black troops from the 25th Infantry that were stationed down in Texas. And, of course, black troops were not received very well 
in the eastern and in the southern parts of the country following the Civil War. And an incident took place as to where there was a riot. And as a result of that riot, the United States Army dishonorably discharged 167 black soldiers. It was the largest mass discharging that had been done to this day in the history of the Army. Yet we didn't see any mention of that. Where, When you walk into the museum, where do you find anything that has to do with the, the service of black people in the military? When you go into the front door, there's a sign on a, on a placard that says that the military history is located on the second floor. It's located up in the community gallery, which is an odd place for it to be placed. What were you expecting to see when you walked into the community gallery? Quite honestly, I wasn't sure what we would see based on our inability to be able to communicate with the institution. Mm -hmm. We were not sure what we were going to find when we walked in. We are speaking with Charles Bleacher III, chairman of the National Coalition of Black Veteran Organizations, about their take on the National Museum of African American History and Culture. We're going to take a break, and then we will continue our conversation with Mr. Bleacher. This is Via Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. Welcome back. We're speaking with Charles Blacher III, chairman of the National Coalition of Black Veteran Organizations, about a piece of history, of important history that's missing in that exhibit, and that has to do with the black veterans. And once we did see the exhibit, it was obvious why we had not been consulted with by them, and it was obvious why we had not heard from them, because they had their own version of what they were trying to present. And the version is certainly not one that black veterans in this country or the community should embrace as being the true history of our contribution. If so, if someone who walks in who doesn't know anything about the contributions of black men and women in the military, and they go to that space in the museum, what do they walk away with? Someone that walks in and takes a look at that exhibit that has no knowledge of the history at all, they're going to be amazed by the beauty of the structure itself. And they're going to look at everything that's being presented without having explanation as to why it's important. And they may feel, well, they know this is the history and they know it, but it is not complete. And those that do know the history should be able, will walk through and see the gaps. The uniform that General Colin Powell used to wear when he was a soldier is on display. What are your thoughts about that? You know, we have publicly said the uniform should be removed. And it is not out of deference to General Powell, because he certainly deserves a place in the history. However, there should be the uniforms of the other pioneer generals and admirals that paved the way to him becoming the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's missing. His uniform standing there as if it's the crowning achievement of black involvement in the armed forces, in my opinion, is very misleading. There's context missing, a very important context missing. Yes, there is. There's a number of generals and admirals that came before General Powell that paved the way to his success. We give him the credit. The experience belongs to the man, but the history belongs to the people. Hmm. No one's trying to take the experience away from him or credit for the experience. He earned that. But the history belongs to all of us, and it should be put in its proper context. So as we look at General Powell, we can have pride in him, but we can also have pride in the individuals that came before him that made his rise possible. And there are quite a few people who came before him. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. You had General Davis, General B.O. Davis, the first black general. Mm -hmm. You had B.O. Davis Jr., his son, who was the first black general in the United States Air Force. 
You had Chappie James, who was first four-star in the United States Air Force. You had Brigadier General Hazel Johnson, who was the first black woman general in the Army. All of those people deserve a place of honor within the context of talking about black military history. You have former Secretary Clifford Alexander, who was the first black secretary of the Army. You have Togo West, who was the second black secretary of the Army. You have Congressman Ron Dellums, who was the first black chairman of the Armed Forces Committee. And of course, you have President Obama, who was the first black commander-in-chief, who also should be represented in that military gallery. It seems like it, there's a there's a gaping hole, there's a gaping wound. Um, it certainly is. And then, so who are, who are the entertainers and sports figures that, that we run into when we go to the museum? Based on the short period of time that we had, mm-hmm. we were allowed in at 3 o'clock and the institution closed at 5.30. Mm-hmm. We did not have time to go up to the top floor where they have the sports and the entertainment section. But I, I was told that there's a Cadillac up there that belonged to Chuck, Chuck Berry and that there's a formal display on the entertainment and sports. I have to agree with you, Mr. Blacher, that that's great that entertainers are, are a, you know, put on pedestals. But those pedestals wouldn't exist had it not been for veterans. You know, it, to have that, first of all, you have to see the building. The building is spectacular. I mean, when you see this structure, it has the appearance of having a crown around on the top of the building, beautifully constructed. And when you go inside the top floor of the crown to be represented by sports and entertainment figures, sends the message that our historical contributions from the colonial times through slavery right up to the present date, that our crowning achievement is to be able to sing and dance and throw a ball. And it's told, it's, it is, uh, it's very, very def- offensive, not just to veterans, but to the black community in general. This is an institution that is supposed to reflect our history and our values to the international world. And for it to have, make such a statement or have it presented as if that is our crowning achievement is an embarrassment, and it needs to be corrected. What would you say is the crowning uh, achievement of of blacks in the United States? The crowning achievement of black history is a work in progress. What we're trying to do right now to get this history straight, in my opinion, would be a crowning achievement to black history. There's many people that have made tremendous contributions to this nation, not within the context of sports and entertainment, that should have a larger a larger footprint in the institution itself. Once a year, we we honor the veterans instead of just honoring the veterans all year round. Once a year, we honor the contributions of black people in the U.S. instead of that being all year round. Finally, there's a museum uh, in D.C. that's supposed to gather, that was supposed to compile that history. Some of it, a lot of it, excruciatingly painful. And other parts of history of so much honor and devotion and dedication to the Constitution of the United States. Thank you for talking with us about this important topic. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You know, I did reach out to the museum and I asked them, why is there a bigger spotlight on entertainers and sports figures over veterans? Why is only the uniform of General Colin Powell displayed alone rather than with the uniforms of other eh, generals who preceded him? And will there be a time when the history of black veterans will receive more attention at the museum? And this is what they said. Yes, it's unfortunate. 
Fortunately, though, there are people such as Mr. Blacher who is working to make sure that their history is not erased. And now we're moving to a conversation that also has to do with history. It has to do with Puerto Rican history and the 100-year anniversary of the Jones Act, which uh, gave Puerto Ricans uh, American citizenship in March of 1907. And Shireen Marisol Meraji, one of the hosts of this fantastic podcast on NPR called Code Switch. It has become my favorite podcast. I encourage all of you to look for it and subscribe to it because they're always coming out with really good in-depth conversations in just a half hour. Um, I told Shireen when I met her, I've learned so much from you. Um, She interviewed me and many other Puerto Ricans who live here in the diaspora about the Jones Act and what that meant for us. And uh, there were different uh, opinions, naturally. And because she is Puerto Rican, and she's Puerto Rican and Irani, I thought it would be interesting to ask her what that experience of reporting on the Jones Act and talking with other Puerto Ricans who are also in the diaspora was like for her. Because the when you're a journalist, it's not that you're in some, you know, walled-off space, uh, divorced from what's going on. Uh, You bring not only your knowledge, but sometimes you bring your entire self to the story. And I could see and I could feel that that's what Shireen did, and I was very interested in talking with her about that. And um, here are some of the things that she said. It was, first of all, growing up, I grew up where my Puerto Rican side, my mother's side, they were really the ones that passed down the culture and the traditions to me. Um, My father's family had some problems with him marrying uh, someone who was not a Muslim and who was not Iranian. And so he was he was separated from his side of the family. So the Puerto Rican side of my family really embraced all of us and, you know, was very Puerto Rican. (laughs) I've talked about Vieques all the time and, you know, we ate Puerto Rican food growing up and my grandparents spoke Spanish to us and we spoke back in English and that's why my Spanish is not quite what I want it to be. Um, But I never grew up around a a lot of Puerto Ricans that I wasn't related to. I mean, I grew up in California, so I grew up around a lot of Mexicans, Filipinos, um, different, different other ethnicities, but there weren't a lot of Puerto Ricans. And so going to Holyoke and being in this place that's nearly 50 percent Puerto Rican where, you know, you see signs in Spanish and you've got uh, the Puerto Rican restaurants everywhere and places selling, you know, all kinds of Puerto Rican everything. It's just another world to me. I mean, I've never experienced that outside of Puerto Rico. And so doing this story there was I just thought about, wow, what would I be like, number one, if I lived in a place like Holyoke, where I was surrounded by my culture and surrounded by my people. Um, And it made me think that, you know, I've gotten away from my culture so much, and I've lost so much of it. And, and so for me, it was really bittersweet. I feel like I, I did grow up going to Vieques a lot. And, and I did have that connection to the island, but it wasn't an everyday thing. And, I just, 
I feel like there was there's a lot lost when you aren't proficient in the language. And I'm so mad at myself that I didn't keep pursuing Spanish and didn't keep, you know, didn't speak to my grandparents and my mom in Spanish instead of English, always responding back in English, always responding back in English, never feeling comfortable to like take it to that place where, you know, I had to be vulnerable and get things wrong and and speak in Spanish. I'm so mad at myself about that. And now that I just got married and I'm, you know, thinking about having children, I can't help thinking, wow, so much of my culture is lost because I didn't pursue that. And being in Holyoke, where you're surrounded by Spanish and everybody is fully bilingual and kind of there's so much of the culture still preserved there. It it just made it reminded me of how much I've lost and and how I had total control over, you know, keeping that culture and keeping the ties even stronger. And I and I didn't work hard enough at it. And so. Yeah, I'm 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 kind of feeling bad and and also feeling like I can do this. It's it's not too late. I I I can, you know, I don't know, strengthen that tie. I I think the sweet side is I did get to experience that and I am part of a community and a culture and I am I mean, what made me feel so good about doing this story and being in Holyoke was I never thought of it I never thought about it like we're a community, you know, the the diaspora we're we're connected to one another and i think that, that that is sweet that makes me feel good and supported and like i'm a part of something because i feel i mean the bitter is your whole life you feel like you're not really a part of anything you know especially being half this and half that um so i think the sweet is that i really came away feeling like oh wait i am a part of this thing i'm a part of this diaspora community and we have so much in common and and that was so – I felt that so strongly when I was in Holyoke. And then uh, the other sweet part of it was that all these people, um, after the story aired, they started writing to me. I mean, I'm talking about children of Slovakian immigrants and Kenyan immigrants and children of Mexican immigrants. And all these people were like, I can relate to that. You know, I have my own diaspora story. And that was so relatable to me. So I think that's the sweet the sweet part about all this for me. And that's the Puerto Rican side, but then also there is the Iranian side. And Shireen spoke about that as well. How rich my life would have been. I would have had all of these amazing, rich Persian traditions. I would have spoke Farsi in a perfect world. And then I would have had all of these, you know, incredible traditions from Puerto Rico. And I would speak Spanish. And then, you know, and I would have grown up in California and I would have that whole Californian thing. It would just be like completely tricultural. God, that was that to me would have been the, the best of all worlds. And yet when one has multiple identities, there's a lot there. And at the same time, there's a lot missing. And we spoke about that as well. I feel a deep sense of loss, Natalia. I feel a very deep sense of loss. And if I talk about it too much, I just... (sighs) And there was also insight. I discovered, I mean, I knew there was always this sense of this fraught identity that Puerto Ricans have. I know that because I grew up with Puerto Ricans. My family, I mean, I'm Puerto Rican. I, I knew that. But I also grew up my whole life thinking that if both my parents were Puerto Rican, 
I would not have the identity crisis that I go through every single day. And what I realized talking to everyone from Holyoke is that's not necessarily the case. That just because you have two parents that are Puerto Rican doesn't mean that you don't deal with, you know, this fraught relationship with the United States and this, you know, this complex identity that sometimes you're not, you know, you don't feel comfortable with. That was a revelation to me. It really was. Like, I knew it in my head, but I felt it in my heart after talking to so many people in Holyoke about it and talking to you about it. I always thought it would be easier if I was all Puerto Rican. Thank you so much to Shireen Marisol Meraji for sharing from her heart the experience of reporting on our Puerto Rican diaspora and how complicated it is. It is a storm of emotions. It is currents running into each other and pulling away from each other. I encourage everyone to tune into Code Switch. All you have to do is Google Code Switch and NPR and you'll find the program. The program that uh, we were speaking about specifically was the one regarding the Jones Act, the 100th anniversary. That is episode 524. Um, But I promise you that every episode is compelling. We're going to take a break and then we'll come back with our Spanish segment with Ariadna Goenaga speaking about why do movies matter? Why do the Oscars matter? Bienvenidos a Vaya Comunios. Ahora entramos en la parte en español y estamos hablando con Ariadna Goenaga, que es una cineasta, una crítica de cine excelente. Eh, cuando ella me recomienda una película, sea documental, sea de donde sea, yo la veo. Y si me dice que no vaya a ver una película, no la veo, porque confío 100% en su análisis de las películas. O sea, que eso va más allá, que si me gusta la película, no me gusta la película. Este, hablamos con ella sobre por qué en esta época en que parece que el mundo se está cayendo en cantos. Sin embargo, seguimos viendo las películas o seguimos bajando las películas y sintonizamos a ver, ok, ¿quién ganó el Oscar por mejor película? Y yo le pregunté a ella, ¿y ¿cómo puede importar esta industria en esta época que parece que hemos vuelto a la edad media? Y esto fue lo que dijo. Vamos a hablar sobre la película Moonlight. A mí me pareció una película muy interesante. ¿Por me pareció muy interesante porque no estamos muy acostumbrados a ver este tipo de películas en, en, que se ven en los cines, ¿no? Y sobre todo si vienen de Estados Unidos. Yo aquí desde, desde Barcelona, desde Europa, tenemos un cine no tan mainstream como hay en la mayoría del cine que nos llega de Estados Unidos aquí. Y esta era distinta. Y me sorprendió porque era una película que es dura, es duro lo que lo que explica, pero lo hace de una forma tan poética, tan cercana, que al final, aun sintiendo la dureza de la situación ¿no? de este niño que se crea en un entorno muy adverso ¿no? para poder ser de mayor lo que él quiera ser, aun así tiene la poesía y la esperanza que, que, que acaba transmitiendo. Te deja al final de la película como una sensación de, de complicidad y de y de hasta cierto punto de, de, de bueno, pese a, a todo lo que tiene que pasar y todo lo que tiene que vivir, se va a salir, va a salir de eso y va, y va a conseguir ser lo que él quiera ser. Aparte de Revolú, que pasó, que se confundieron entre La La Land y Moonlight, sí. ¿te acuerdas? El otro día hablamos y yo te dije, ay, es que 
es que los Oscars no importan. Es que eso que no tiene nada que ver con nada. Porque básicamente, este, como Trump es el presidente, estamos perdidos. No, yo, yo lo que pensé es que esta película hace unos años, y no tenemos que, que mirar muchos años atrás, no o igual no se hubiese rodado porque no hubiese encontrado financiación, o ni mucho menos hubiese ganado como mejor película en una ceremonia de los Oscars. Entonces, el que el cine muchas veces ha hecho este papel de ir por delante de la sociedad y creo que ha puesto, pone en evidencia un, un tipo de cine y un tipo de historias y un tipo de realidades, porque es una historia que muy convincente, que, que, que te crees que está basada, que te crees que ese niño existe y que ese niño pasa por, por esas etapas de adolescencia y de, y de madurez. O sea, que una película que, que, que tiene este discurso, gane los Oscars, es como que no solo mucha gente va a ver una película que a lo mejor en su vida hubiese ido a ver, sino que está poniendo de manifiesto una serie de, de, de realidad que, que, que seguramente queda, queda escondida y que es importante. Entonces, para mí es una esperanza en que en esta ola de, de que parece de involución, ¿no? tanto en, en Estados Unidos como en Europa también, ¿no? de, de, de todo el tema de los refugiados, todo el tema de las distancias que, que, sea, que, que durante estos años de crisis económicas han, han, han hecho mucho más grandes el gap entre ricos y pobres, entre justicia social, que parece que haya desaparecido, pues pone en, en el ojo del huracán nuevamente en el centro eh, la problemática que, que, que no debemos olvidar ni dejarnos que, que, que nos tapen con, 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 no sé, con discursos fáciles y, y con, con palabras vacías, pero que buscan solo impacto. Así que, ¿tú crees que el cine es todavía relevante a nuestras vidas? Yo creo que sí. Este año ha sido un ejemplo, ha sido un ejemplo de, de madurez, ¿no? De, de, de una academia que muchas veces la hemos acusado de ser conservadora y de premiar lo espectacular, grandes producciones, pues esta vez ha premiado una película que comparada con otras no, no, ha, tenido, no, tiene, no ha tenido un coste demasiado alto y habla de un tema y, y, lo, y un planteamiento sobre todo en que muy ajeno a lo que se está haciendo ahora en, en cine en, en su mayoría. ¿Cómo esto compara el cine que tú has visto de los Estados Unidos con el cine que tú ves en Europa? Bueno, la, a, el cine que se hace en Europa, aunque también hay una vocación de, de hacer películas a, a, que se parezcan un poco a las que se hacen en Estados Unidos de, para conseguir mucha audiencia, es verdad que hay toda una industria de cine, de historias, dijésemos, entre comillas, sencillas ¿no? del día a día. Un cine que viene de Inglaterra, con Ken Loach, viene de, de Bélgica, con los hermanos Dardenne, que acaban de estrenar ahora. Ahora mismo acaban de estrenar la película iraní, que ganó los Oscars también. Entonces, tenemos un cine que se hace en Europa, que, que por, por razones de presupuesto tiene que pensar en historias fáciles de, de contar y con pocos medios. ¿no? Entonces, eso hace que, que la imaginación y que la creatividad tengas que explotarla al máximo, porque sabes que no vas a tener muchos recursos económicos para contar esa película. Bueno, pues esa es la ventaja que tenemos en que vemos un cine más conceptualmente uh, complicado, pero más, más tocando de pies al suelo. Y luego, obviamente, nos llegan cines de, de, partes de, de otras partes del mundo. Es verdad que muchas veces hay modas. Irán, por ejemplo, es un país que, que en las últimas, yo diría, décadas está llegando muy buen cine de Irán. Tenemos Japón, está Corea... Y, y bueno, sí, yo, yo creo que está llegando, o que hay en las salas de cine se está mostrando cine de otras partes del mundo que los de Estados Unidos, aunque es verdad que el cine de Estados Unidos es el que copa la mayoría de las audiencias por, por encima de un 80%, por ejemplo. Parece que esta película Moonlight, igualmente, oh. 
puede ser puede ser como un augurio de que eh, va a haber un cambio hacia... Eh, no lo sé, habrá que verlo, porque el cine también ha tenido siempre una función crítica y eso es un, una función que, que, que y una aspiración que no tiene que perder nunca y a veces ha, ha sido una respuesta a, a situaciones que se han dado sociales, económicas, que son malas, ¿no? Y critica al poder, y critica a los medios. Entonces, a veces, es verdad, no es, es como que, desgraciadamente, cuando las cosas van mal a nivel social, económico y político, a veces se hacen grandes películas, porque es como de alguna manera se despiertan y el cine coge la bandera de decir, oye, vamos a denunciar esta manipulación aquí, allí... Vamos a denunciar, por ejemplo, hay un docu los documentales ahora que se están haciendo sobre los refugiados que están viniendo de Siria, ¿no? Es, es triste que tenga que pasar lo de los, los refugiados de Siria para que se hagan grandes documentales denunciando la hipocresía europea, ¿no? Ante, ante esa, ese drama, ¿no? Entonces es una oportunidad también de, 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 de coger la bandera de, de, de la conciencia ética y, y moral, ¿no? De nuestra sociedad. This is Vaya con Muñoz with Natalia Muñoz on 96.9 WHMP. You heard right, that was Spanish. <laughs> Thanks to Ariadna Goenaga for talking about the movies and the Oscars and why it matters that we just keep on watching the good stuff that's being produced. I know that every week I just rail against, you know, what's going on in the White House and what's happening with this administration and people are living in such fear. And it doesn't make any sense to me. It seems to me that a president should not scare people. Well, maybe scare people who are enemies of the United States, but certainly not scare este, Americans, certainly not scare people who come here to work and be part of this and this country, which after all was founded on the massacres of the indigenous people and the enslavement of ins uh, black people uh, and the conquest <laughs> of Latinos and it just this is not an easy history and if we could just recognize that it's, that it's a, actually it's a it's a bloody history it's it's a painful history then we can work to really to heal and really be a united states as opposed to people divided along political ideology um, you know i think it's okay if we want to be divided upon along the lines of um, well You like certain food and I like this other certain food. Okay. Though, you know what? I, I saw on my social media that there's this restaurant, I don't remember where, and they specialize in preparing foods from countries which are at war. So they have food from, they, you know, you can go there and you can eat Afghan, uh, food from Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, from a anywhere. That's brilliant because food is actually what brings us together. Doesn't mean we always have to agree that we like the same things. I don't like red meat, for example. Maybe you love red meat. We can still be friends. In fact, <laughs> some of my best friends love Bernie, and I have made a new friend this week who voted for este, Trump. So there, so I think there, there's hope, even in the the worst uh, moments of the day when when we despair, at least when I despair. 
I have to remember, there is hope. There was somebody who talked about hope. Remember him? Thank you, former President Obama, for still being around. And thank you, Hillary Clinton, for still being around as well. And thank you, movie makers who keep making really great movies and activists who keep pushing to make this a more perfect union. Oh my goodness, I'm sounding peace and love and este like I, I wait, wait, let me get let me get something straight here. Yes, peace and love, but I'm not going to sing we are gentle, angry people. I think we have a lot of work to do to come together. On a March twentieth, the Democratic Party of our city is going to get together. I'm going to go to that. Um, it'll be interesting. It has been interesting, people coming together. Because if there's one thing we can agree on, is that we have to work together to make this a better country. It started off all wrong. It started off in a way, if I'm going to you know, touch base with my Catholic upbringing, it started off in a way that's just unforgivable. But what are we going to do now? Well, let's honor all the people who fought to make this not worth how it began, but worth making better for everybody. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox now and share with you some of the people who showed up on a recent freezing, freezing night to show support for Muslims and to reject the ban on Muslims imposed by this administration. Andrea Franco. I am here because I have to support the immigrants. I am immigrants. I am very proud to do that, to be here. And this is what her daughter said. My name is Gladys, and I'm here because I believe that we are living in re really dangerous times and that um, we need to protect democracy. Democracy is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And if we, the people, don't do anything about it, then our democracy is going to be destroyed. We really need to stand up as citizens and take action against the actions of the current uh, presidential administration and the Republican Party who is supporting him um, and really stand up for our neighbors, for those that are the most vulnerable and just do the right thing. Thank you, Andrea, and thank you, Gladys. And thank you for listening today. Thank you, Charles Blacher. Thank you, Ariana Goenaga. Thank you, Shireen Marisol, Miraji. You're awesome. I look forward to hearing you again on Code Switch. And now we're going to be sung out by Juan Luis Guerra and his group 440, a song called Visa para un Sueño, The Dream of Having a Visa. Uh, this is a group from the Dominican Republic. This great dance music. I hope you love it. I love it. Maybe we can dance together. Even though you eat red meat, I don't. Even though you voted for Trump, I did. You love Bernie, not me. But we can certainly work together. Have a great day, everybody. Eran las cinco en la mañana. Un seminarista, un obrero Con mil papeles de solvencia Que no le dan pa' ser sinceros Eran las siete de la mañana Y uno por uno al matadero Pues cada cual tiene su precio Buscando visa para un sueño Quemándoles la entraña uh, Un fórmula 
diario de consuelo Con una foto dos por cuatro Que se derrite en el silencio Eran las nueve de la mañana Santo Domingo, ocho de enero Con la paciencia que se acaba Pues ya no hay visa para un sueño Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP.